Well, I know some of you weren't here last week, but for, uh, for those of you that were, you'll remember I started out the message last week by talking about how verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1, which is the series that we're in, uh, the book of Ephesians and uh, the paragraph that we looked at last week, verses 3 to 14, are kind of like climbing up a mountain and, and just trying to catch a glimpse to take a, a little bit of a peek at God's glory and, and God's work in our salvation. That first paragraph, which as you remember is one long sentence in the original, talks about the marvelous blessings of God, the fact that God chose us, the fact that God adopted us, the fact that God redeemed us and forgave us and, and lavishly graced us. And then I ended by saying that we, need to, we should try to stay up on that mountain. That's our goal, to try to stay up there and to try to keep thinking of God in those, in those lofty, heightened terms when we think about God's blessings. Well, the next section in Ephesians 1, right after verse 14 and to the end of the chapter, tells us to do exactly that. We all kind of know that we have to come down from the mountain and that, and that we have to live in this world. And that's what God actually wants us to do, to, to live down here and to, and to serve people and to disciple people and to proclaim the gospel and to, to parent our children and to love our spouse and to work hard in whatever occupation he's given us. That, he, he, he keeps us in the world to function in the world. But Paul, now that he's brought us up to the mountain there, to consider God's spiritual blessings, prays here that we might see, that we might know those glorious realities. He doesn't want us to be short-sighted. He doesn't want us to forget those blessings. And so he prays now that, that those blessings might be embedded into our vision and into our minds. When we think back to some of the highlights of our lives, we talk about them as mountaintop experiences, don't we? Highlights might include things like that, that once-in-a-lifetime vacation that you've planned for a long time and looked forward to for a long time and, and even saved up for for a long time. For some of you, that might have been a trip to Disneyland or, or a trip to Hawaii or to Europe somewhere, or, or to New York on a shopping trip. You finally get there, right? And then you don't want to come back. You wish you could stay. Or when you do come back, you, you just don't want to forget the experience. You want to keep it in, in your mind. You, you don't want to lose your, your sense of the, of the smells and of the sights and of the sounds. Well, that's kind of like what Paul is praying for here. He's just written to the Ephesians about those glorious truths about God and his graces, and now he wants them to kind of stay there, at least in their thoughts and in their senses. When we're up on a mountain for a while, we start to kind of find it hard to breathe, and soon we want to get down from that rarefied air to where it's a, a little bit easier on our spiritual lungs. And so Paul here prays for these Ephesians that they might know these blessings, that they might be intimate with the sights and the sounds of God's blessings. He prays that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know 
what God has accomplished for you. So if you brought your Bibles along and you haven't turned there yet, why don't you uh, follow along as I read from Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 21. And, and as you're following along, or as you're listening, be listening for the things that Paul wants for the recipients of his letter and what God now desires for us. Ephesians 1, verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's authoritative, inspired, powerful word for us. Paul starts there by showing, really, his great pastoral heart and his concern for the church there in Ephesus. He, he loved these people. He'd gone to great pains to preach the gospel to that city. And then for three years to teach the words so that, they, so that they'd keep on growing. You can see that back in Acts 20 when he, when he leaves Ephesus and gives a farewell speech. Starting in Acts 20 verse 27, he says that he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to them. He tells them then to watch out for people. He actually calls them savage wolves who will try to distort what Paul has just declared. And then in verse 32 of Acts 20, he says, And now I commend to you God and to the word, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed for them all. And at the end of that, it says that, that they, they were crying, they were in tears because they knew that he would, they wouldn't see him again, that he wouldn't come there again. So you can see that Paul loved these people, he cared for them. And that's a good lesson for us right at the top, especially for us who are leaders of this church, but also those who belong to the church. One of the reasons that we exist is to offer each other spiritual support. Tim Keller is the, is the pastor of a church in Manhattan where where a, a lot of the churches, many of the churches, in fact, most of the churches there in Manhattan saw their attendance rise right after, right after 9-11, September 11th, 2001. But not too many weeks later, 
everything was kind of back to normal for most of the churches. While Tim Keller's church was the exception, the attendance there stayed up after 9-11 and in the, not only in the weeks following, but the months and the years following. When he was asked why, he said, he said this, very insightful. He says, if you weren't ready to offer spiritual support before the tragedy, trying to organize the church to offer support after the tragedy was too late. We need to be a church where people care for each other and pray for each other and love each other. It needs to be part of the fabric of this church. You know, we've uh, just thought about this this morning. We just got new directories, new phone directories. Those would be a great tool for you to use to pray for people in our church. Just pray for the directory. Take one page or, or side of a page and just pray for those people. Just these kind of prayers, Ephesians 1, 15 to 21. The end of Ephesians 3 is another kind of prayer. If you don't know the request to pray for, just pray those things. Praying the Bible, praying the words of the Bible is the only kind of prayer that's inspired because it's from God. But use those to pray for the people in your church, support the people of our body. Two ways to support people spiritually there is to be thankful for them and to pray for them. That's what Paul models for us here. He says, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which, is, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease, I do not stop giving thanks for you while making mention to you in my prayers. He was thankful, and he prayed. Actually, a better way to say it would be that he was thankful whenever he prayed for them. Leaders of this church, elders, care group leaders, ministry leaders, Pastors, do we, do I pray for our people? And when we pray, are we thankful to God? We need to do that regularly. We need to be observing people's faith. We need to be thankful for, for people that are growing in their commitment to God and are giving evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And we need to observe how people show acts of kindness and love to each other. And then, just like Paul did, we ought to let people know we're thankful to God for them and that we are praying for them. Well, that brings us to the content of Paul's prayers. What exactly is Paul asking God to do for this church? Well, you see the answer there in verse 17 and following. Here's the main emphasis of the passage and, and kind of the main takeaway for us this morning. What does Paul desire most for these people? What does he keep asking God to do for these people? Note that whatever he's asking is what Paul wanted for this church and what God, having inspired Paul's letters, wants for you as someone who professes to be a Christian. He actually says the same thing twice there in, in different ways. Verse 17, he says, making mention, to you in my, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you what? Here is what he's asking for. To give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's asking for God's wisdom and God's revelation so that they would know God. The end to which he prays is the knowledge of God. He's asking God to, he's asking God to help them know God. And then verse 18, he basically says the same thing again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know Stop right there. He's going to go on to ask God what he wants them to know, but just for now, 
Note that he's especially with, concerned with what they know. And actually, Paul is concerned more with whom they know. Basically, Paul is praying for their minds. He's praying for their thinking. He wants their thinking to be Godward. He wants them to stay on the mountain, not necessarily in their actions, but in their minds. And if they get that part of it, it will inform their actions at a, at a real-life level where we all live. It all starts up here. And if you don't get up here right, it'll mess you up when you're trying to live out in the world. The Bible is constantly concerned with our minds. It's, it's concerned that our minds inform our actions. And you can see that even in the way most of Paul's letters are structured. You'll see that right here in Ephesians. Paul spends the first three chapters writing about doctrine, about who we are in Christ, about our blessings, about our faith. And only in chapter 4 does he say, Therefore, because of all I've said in the first three chapters, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Because of everything I just told you about what God has done, this is how you should walk. This is how you should live. This is how you should behave. Get it straightened away in your head first, and then you'll know how to live. Paul always emphasizes what we know. Know some of the verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? Be changed how? By the renewing of your minds. Or Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth, not on earthly things. And Paul even talks about the mind in his warnings about the things that might trip us up in our faith. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, for though we walk in the, in the flesh, at this level, says we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against, listen, the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive or active, captive to obey Christ. If we're going to wage war against those who think wrongly about the knowledge of God, we'll need to use the weapon of our minds, thoughts that are informed by the word of God. This was the problem for the people in Hosea. God says there, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And so Paul is praying that God might grant us to know him. Paul prays that same thing for almost every church that he writes to. Philippians 1.9, he prays that their love will abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Colossians 1.9, he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And verse 10, be increasing in the knowledge of God. Philemon 6, we see the same thing. I pray that your faith might become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For Paul, it was important that transformation start in our minds. Our minds need renewing so that we know Christ. Lots of times, people just want to know what to do. Especially for those of you who are more hands-on. You might say, Pastor, just tell me what to do. And then I come up here and say, you need to think. But I encourage you today to exercise your mind a little bit. Strain your mind to perceive things about God. Meditate on who God is. Study his attributes. 
Get to know his character. And the best place for you to do that is in his word. Read your Bible. And read books about the Bible. And don't just read the Bible to get facts. The goal is not just to know more about God. Your goal by spending time with God and his word is to know God. You don't just want to try to know God intellectually. James says even the demons believe and shudder. But you want to get to the point where you know God intimately. You need to involve your senses. You need to involve your affections. I love how King David describes it. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That might seem kind of weird and, you know, maybe even cannibalistic. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But it's a picture of David using his senses to get past just head knowledge in his desire for God. What David wants and what Paul wants for the Ephesians is that we might have a knowledge of God that affects our senses. Paul not only prays this for the churches, he wants it for himself too. In fact, knowing Christ was at the very top of of his desires. The passage that pastor just read, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of what? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Why? That I may know him. Paul wanted nothing more than to know God. Do you talk like that? Do I talk like that? I mean, do we even come close to being able to say something like that? I just look at how easily I can get distracted by the things of our world, by the things that are infinitely less important or infinitely, of infinitely lesser value. God, help us to have knowing God as our all-encompassing priority. That the desire that's at the top of our list of values, to count all other things as lost compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Can you say that? Are your priorities ordered in such a way that nothing in the world is more important than knowing God? You might want to take some time this week to think about some of the things that you have slotted ahead of knowing God in your list of values. Well, what is it about God that Paul wants them to know? This is one of those texts where it's very straightforward. Look back at, a, at Ephesians 1, verse 18. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, during accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the, his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But basically, he wants them to know three things there. The hope of his calling, 
the riches of the inheritance of his glory in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And the rest of what he says just expands on that third one. So first, I pray that you will know the hope of his calling. What does Paul want us to know about God? He wants us to know the hope that comes from his calling of us. The idea of God calling us goes back to the very beginning of our salvation. Romans 8.30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. But on that chain, God's calling there is right at the beginning. It all starts, after eternity passed, it starts with God calling us to salvation. And that calling is secure. Those whom he calls, he justifies. It's a fact. It will happen. Those whom he calls, he justifies. In that sense, God's calling is effectual. It always accomplishes its effect because it is God who calls. And that should help us have a biblical kind of hope, is what Paul is saying. And I say a a biblical kind of hope because it's not the same as the way we think of hope. We think of hope as something that might happen, but we're not sure it will. You know, kind of like, I hope I'm going to get this sermon done by 12, but I already know it's not going to happen. I'm not quite sure, but now I already know. In the Bible, hope is usually something certain that will happen in the future. 1 Peter 1 says, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Or Hebrews 6.19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both, listen to it now, sure and steadfast. Christian, if, you're, if you ramp up your knowledge of God, of the hope of his calling, you will be secure. The hope of his calling is an anchor for the soul. It's unmoving. It's just like a ship anchor, right? It'll keep you in place. If you have hardship in your life, you can be sure that the anchor of your calling, the anchor of your salvation, is not going to lift. It will not shift. It will stay steady. It will keep you grounded. That calling is kept in heaven for you by God. Why? Because as we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In other words, those whom he called, he justified. Your calling led to your justification because Jesus took the penalty for your sin and then he absorbed the full extent of God's wrath against your sin. Jesus did that. And he did it once and for all. Friends, know the hope of your calling. Some of you are here today might not be that sure. But you can know this hope too. By virtue of the fact that you're here and you are hearing this message this morning, it's landing in your ears. God might be calling you. Maybe you don't have this anchor-like hope, this biblical kind of hope. Maybe you still hope God will accept your goodness. Maybe you're banking on the fact that your, your good deeds might just be enough to outweigh your bad deeds. But that's not how things work on God's scale. The only thing God accepts is perfection. Perfect deeds, perfect thoughts, perfect actions all the time. Well, 
you just look at that and you say, impossible. And you'd be right. But the Bible says what is impossible with man, and this is our hope, is possible with God. And it became possible when God sent his son to earth. Perfect God, perfect man. And when Jesus was crucified on this cross, his perfect life can now be credited to your account, making you acceptable before holy God. If you repent of your sins, namely if you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, trusting totally in in his death on the cross for your sins, trusting not in your works, then you can know this sure hope of his calling as well. That's actually a, a good bridge for us to Palm Sunday to start thinking about that. The best way that God has given for us to know him is to know his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus brought this hope that Paul wants us to know. When he sent his disciples to, when Jesus sent his disciples to go and get that donkey, remember that? The one that he would ride into Jerusalem. He says, this happened there to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Do you ever wonder why he came in on a donkey, on a beast of burden, and not on a horse? Martin Luther says this, which is very helpful. He says, Jesus is presented there as sheer grace, humility, and goodness. And whoever believes that of him is blessed. Look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal. And he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but he sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Goes on to say, he says, Thereby Jesus shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive them or to oppress them, but to help them to carry their burdens and to take them on himself. Well, Palm Sunday is a pointer already, a few days in advance, to what Jesus would do on the cross when he himself would carry the burdens of our sins, those very sins that prevented us from standing before a holy God. And those burdens would then be nailed to the cross as they're on him and as Christ is nailed to that cross. So the hope of our calling came in the person of Jesus. Ephesians 2.12 says that formerly you had no hope, but now in Christ Jesus you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Where there was no hope for you, now Christ is your only hope through the cross. You need to trust Christ and Christ alone. Well, secondly, and these ones will go by quicker, Paul says, I pray that you will know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Paul wants us to know that God gives us a secure hope because of what he did for us in the beginning in calling us to himself, but he also wants us to know that God gives us a security for the future. This would have been very reassuring for the people that originally read this letter. These people in Ephesus, the ones that were now believers in Ephesus, paid a price for this change, literally paid a price. Back in Acts 19.18, when Paul is visiting Ephesus, it says, Many of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Why does 
It gives us that information. Why is that important? It's important because they gave up their livelihood for their new belief. They were making good money, but they gave it all up because they were now believers and they burned all their books, all their training guides. And when Paul wrote Ephesians about 10 years later, these people are still poor. And so when Paul reminds them of the riches of the glory of his inheritance, he doesn't use the word riches by accident. He's saying that the material riches that they gave up are nothing compared to the riches of the glory that are awaiting you. Saying you just keep the eyes off your heart focused on the one who gave you all these things, all these blessings. Your, your wealth will be returned to you a hundredfold. Again, Paul is giving them a great word of assurance that riches are coming. Ones that will not fade away like those other things. You Ephesians did not make a mistake in burning your books. The glory that is coming will far outweigh, far outvalue that stuff. Any of you need that reminder today too? Maybe you're in a spot where you're wondering whether this is all worth it. Whether you gave up too much in becoming a Christian. You see all your friends looking like they're having fun. They don't have a care in the world. They're partying like there's no tomorrow. Well, God is saying, you just keep going. Because there is a tomorrow. And there is a forever. And you can trust that what they are doing now is nothing compared to what will be going on when you receive your inheritance in full with the saints in heaven. The inheritance you have received is priceless. Well, finally, verse 19, I pray that you will know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He prays that we would know God's power. If God's calling is what happened at the beginning and of our salvation and the riches of his inheritance are what, happened, what will happen in the future, Paul prays that they might know God's power in the in-between time, now. Because this knowledge about God will help us now, Paul spends the most time on it. In fact, the rest of this chapter is just an explanation and expansion of God's power. And we could spend a lot of time on the details of this section, but all I want you to see here today is that Paul goes to great lengths to tell us that we can know God is powerful. Why? How? Because he's already shown us his power in an amazing way. How does he show that? By what we will celebrate next Sunday. Did you catch that? This power in verse 19 is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about how? In Christ. When? When he raised him from the dead. And then it talks about how he also exalted him as well. Do you feel weak? Do you sometimes even feel that God is not powerful enough for whatever situation you're facing right now? Just remember what God did in raising his son from the dead. There's nothing more powerful than that. Not only did he bring his son from death to life, and in doing that, he defeated the only things that we can't control. He defeated both sin and evil. In Christ, he has conquered both. And he has rescued you from both of these things. In fact, he has raised you from the dead, just as Christ, just as he raised Christ from the dead through the resurrection of his son. And the beauty of the power of God in raising his son from the dead 
you can see it in Ephesians 2, verse 5. Just flip over there. It says, even when we were dead in our transgression, God made us alive, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Same language he uses here of what he did for his son, he now does for us as well. Raised and exalted. Wow. You are actually joined with Christ in God's resurrection power. Now there is some knowledge that's worth knowing, isn't it? Do you think our politicians are powerful? Do you think our culture is powerful? Children, do you think you're too weak to stand up to to some of the bullies at school? Employees, do you feel helpless under your boss or, or foreman or supervisor at work? Christian, do you generally feel helpless to the alluring forces of this world that are trying to draw you in and and you feel helpless to stand against them, the media, the the advertising that we're bombarded with, the movies? Do you feel weak in comparison to all those powers? Well, let this knowledge of God's resurrection power help you to not lose heart. God and his power has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And beside that, God's power in Christ will all be put into subjection under his feet. You, Christian, are united to Christ. You are united to him. Do you know the surpassing greatness over all those temporary powers that exist? Surpassing greatness of the power of God. Do you know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Do you know the hope of his calling? I pray that you would strive to know God and that during this Passion Week you would strive to know him and the power of his resurrection. May God answer Paul's prayer in your life and may he open the eyes of your heart to see him and to really and truly know his hope and his riches and his power. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have this morning opened our eyes to see Christ. Lord, for some of us in this room today, it may have been that day, that day when you removed the blinders and allowed us to to see Jesus and how his life and his death opened the door for salvation. Salvation that could not be achieved by us but was achieved by Christ For the rest of us, Lord, we pray that you would continue to enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, so that we would grow in the knowledge of you. I pray that you would instill within us that desire, above all else, to know the immeasurable greatness of your call and the riches of your inheritance and the hope of your calling. Lord, increase our our faith, increase our desire to grow, increase our knowledge of you until that day when we no longer see dimly but when we see you face to face. May it be so, Lord, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.